in our series uh, called The Word Made Flesh, um, and uh, uh, we continue with this um, first part of the Gospel of John, the prologue, which is the, the drama of divine love. Uh, last week, we looked at the first part of it, which is um, really the eternal love of the triune God before creation, and then this morning, we look at the compassionate love of Jesus as He enters into our creation. So I want, to, I want to begin with a story about a movie that I saw recently, and I, had knew, I knew nothing about this movie, and Cindy suggested that we watch it, and 90 minutes later, as the credits were rolling, I said, that is the best movie I have seen in 20 years. It was that good. Now, I want to give you the summation of it, and uh, I won't mess it up for those of you who haven't seen it yet, but uh, this little boy, age five, named Saru Brierly is living uh, in a family in England in the village of Ganesh Delay. His mom is a single mother. She gathers rocks for a living. His older brother, Gadu, steals coal from trains. They are incredibly poor. And so Saru idolizes his big brother. One day Saru decides that he's going to go with his big brother to the big city in order to, to work with him. uh, Gadu says, no, no, you you can't go. But Saru insists that he goes. And so they take the train to uh, the big city. And when they get there, Saru is exhausted. And all he can do is sleep on the bench. And so Gadu goes and he searches for a job. And when when Saru wakes up, he's completely alone. So he gets back back up on the train. This time the train is decommissioned and it travels 1,500 miles or 1,600 miles to Calcutta. And he's on the train the whole time. That's like going from New York to Denver alone on a train for days and days. He gets to Calcutta and he is completely alone, incredibly dangerous. Uh, He ends up in an orphanage. The people in the orphanage set out pictures in the newspaper. Have you seen this boy? Nobody has. Then his life radically changes because he is adopted by a couple from Australia. So now he has an amazing adoptive mom and dad bringing him up. But is he ever going to see his mom again or his brother again? Fast forward 20 plus years. He's now at the university. He's now uh, working on completing his degree. And using Google Earth, he begins to wonder, he has flashbacks about his past. Begins, he begins to wonder, where did I come from? Like, where was that village that I grew up in? And using Google Earth, he finally figures it out. He decides to go back to Ganesh Delay. And the scene where he is reunited with his mom is absolutely incredible. The cinematography is amazing. They capture the love of this mom who had lost her son for over 25 years. But that scene is balanced by the other scene where he's talking to his adoptive mother and he realizes that his adoptive mother could have kids. She wasn't infertile, she could have kids. It's just that she chose to adopt because she wanted to bless a boy who did not have a family. And the whole point of the movie is the point about unconditional love. One mom never lost hope. The other mom 
poured her life into a boy who was lost. Now, when you have a piece of art like that movie that is all about love, you feel the impact of love at a very deep level. What John is doing in the prologue to the Gospel of John is he's taking very deep theology about God and he's casting it into very succinct poetry. And the whole point of the prologue of the Gospel of John is that we would feel the love of God at a very deep level. So here's how we're going to handle these next verses. The poetic structure works like this. We start with verse 14 because verse 14 describes how Jesus comes. Then we're going to go below to verses 15 through 18, which describes how he communicates. And then we go back to verses 10 through 13 that describes how we should respond. Okay, we're looking at poetry, kind of analyzing it as people who are looking and appreciating it, but we're going to kind of go out of order in order to really appreciate. So, here's how it it begins. Jesus comes and he shows forth God's love in action. And what we see is the word became flesh. Four words. And there is a wealth of depth that happens in those four four, four words. Now, I want you to think with me about the love you feel when somebody shows up personally for you, how do you feel loved? We have a lot of ways to communicate these days. We have Facebook. We have Facebook Messenger. We've got snail mail. We have email. We have go to meeting. We've got Zoom. A zillion ways we can communicate. But how do you feel when somebody shows up personally and looks you in the eyes, gives you a hug, shakes your hand, It changes the way you feel because there's nothing like the personal connection that comes when somebody shows up personally at your door. That's what Jesus did. He shows up personally. So uh, I got a paradigm-shifting experience in my life when I was about, I don't know, 12, 12 years old along these same lines. My father took us on a family vacation to Nantucket Island. And um, you may know Nantucket's off the coast of Cape Cod. And so we are, are at Nantucket. We, we knew this well because we had been there many, many different vacations. My dad got a phone call the first day, and his boss, I think it was from Chicago, called and said, there's an emergency at the home office. You've got to come home immediately. And my dad was a little miffed because this was his annual vacation that he had planned for. 
Guy said, you got to come home. So my father negotiated, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to come home tomorrow. I'm going to spend tomorrow with my son. I'll come home the following day. So the, his boss said, fine, that, that's great. So the next day was magical in my memory because my dad rented a sailboat, and we sailed across that harbor, Nantucket Harbor, to Katoo Beach, and we explored the beach and the fishing shacks and the beach. We spent the entire day together. And I loved that time because it was my dad connecting with me personally the entire day long. Now, I remember that really well because that day was like this really special day, a compressed time, a personal, personal connection, and we were able to just have a great time that day. I probably romanticized that day in my, in my memory. But here's the deal. My dad was there with me face to face. We sailed together. We hiked together. We explored together. And that changed the way I thought about relating to my kids. Because when my kids were little, I remember that, that day. And I remember thinking, if I'm going to have good time with my kids, I've got to have face time. I've got to have one-on-one time. I have the time where I'm, I'm with them personally. That is exactly how Jesus decided to come to us. Real love has a face. Real love is presence. And the face of love in John 1.14 is Jesus. But notice with Jesus that um, the time wasn't just a day. The time was an entire lifetime. We see this in this concept. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. You think about that idea of God dwelling in human flesh on the face of the earth. I mean, theoretically, what God could have done, he's all-powerful. He could have written up in the stars in the skies, I love you. That would have been pretty cool. A constellation that says, I love you. And every night you could look up in the stars and go, yeah, God loves me. That is so awesome. It's so amazing. But he does so much more than that by sending his son who dwells among us not for a brief amount of time, not for a day, a week, a month, but for an entire, an entire lifetime. So we see this in the idea that he dwelt among us because the, the Hebrew word is the word tabernacle. So here's the Old Testament tabernacle, a recreation of it. And the idea with the tabernacle is when you, you came into the tabernacle, you were moving progressively into the presence of God, which hovered over the holy holies at the rear end of that holy place. You were moving into the presence of God. So when, when it says he dwelt among us, he became flesh and he dwelt among us, it's the idea that Jesus is manifesting the presence of the entire triune God. Well, that's incredible. The God who could have said, I love you in the stars, has chosen to spend an entire lifetime with us. Such that today, when you cry out to him in pain and say, do you really, Jesus, do you really understand me? He can say, yes, I do. Because I was human. I was born, I lived, I died, 
I rose. I was fully human. I really do understand the kinds of things that you're going through. What this also tells us is that he brings us into the circle of God's triune love. This, this tabernacle here was designed to bring you into the presence of God. You know what's, you know what's at, the, at, the end of the present, at the end of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark, you know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, the manna, and the, the, the stick, the walking stick, Aaron's walking stick that ended up budding. Those three symbols were in the, the box, the Ark of the Covenant. And those three items in the Ark of the Covenant symbolize the presence of the triune God. So the idea that Jesus dwelt among us is the idea that Jesus brings us into the circle of God's infinite, eternal, triune love. Now, what is that designed to do for you? It's designed to make you feel secure in the presence of God's love. I've told this illustration before, but when I was, when I was a kid, I remember very distinctly w- waking up on Saturday mornings, going into my parents' bedroom, climbing up on their bed, getting right in the middle, fidgeting, wiggling, demanding things. You know, Dad, can you make me breakfast? Now, why did I have authority in their lives? I was only four. They were in their 30s. Why why did I have authority to make demands? Dad, wake up and give me breakfast. Why? I was their only son. I was their only son. And I I could make demands. As their, as their son. I felt secure in the circle of their love. The word became flesh and dwelt among us is designed to help you feel incredibly secure in the infinite eternal circle of God's triune love. That raises a question. The question is, what, what did Jesus do each and every day, though, to show love? I mean, just the fact of his coming showed love. But what did he do each and every day to show love? Well, John now tells us, and he tells us with these two terms, grace and truth. Now, here's an interesting thing to to, to think about. Um, Every one of us in this room has a culture that surrounds us. We all have a culture. And we're always like unaware of what that culture is unless somebody tells us. So we were at our daughter's uh, rehearsal dinner uh, about 10 years ago. And one of my daughter's sorority sisters says, gets up and she, she's going to give a toast. And she, she says, you know, the thing I love about Kristen is that being around her is like taking a relational nap. Like as her father, I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what does that mean, relational nap? And then she went on to describe it. She says, when I'm around, Kristen, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be anybody different. I can just be myself. To be around her is to relax and settle into just being myself. My, my daughter still has that culture around her. My other daughter has a totally different culture around her. My daughter and I went to a coffee shop recently in Seattle, and within 120 seconds, she was gripping my hand, and tears were coming out of her eyes, and we were in this really deep conversation. 
It's a culture of authenticity. Every one of us has a culture around us. Everyone. The culture around Jesus was this culture of grace and truth. John captured the snapshot of what that culture looks like. It's a culture of grace and truth. Grace is kindness. It's replenishment. It's empowerment. Grace makes you feel relaxed. Grace makes you feel accepted. Grace makes you feel warmly embraced by Jesus. Jesus made people feel they could be themselves in his presence. But that was balanced by truth. And what truth was, was seeing reality the way that it really was and stating reality the way that it really is. Grace, I'm accepted. Truth, I feel challenged. Grace, I feel unconditionally regarded. Truth, okay, I got some things I need to change. Grace and truth simultaneously made people feel accepted and challenged to grow. And I, I love the word order. It's not truth and grace, it's grace and truth, because grace is the overall big picture culture, the way Jesus lived his life, but truth was what he did inside that culture that allowed people to be warmly received and then to change. Grace and truth flowing together. And when grace and truth are perfectly matched, you feel love. So here, the, the fact of Jesus' love is that he came and lived among us. The culture of that love was this constant experience of grace and truth. It raises one more question about how Jesus came. What was the effect of Jesus' presence among his disciples and among us? Well, um, we get a glimpse of, of God. We get a glimpse of God. And here's, here's what it says. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But, but the key idea is glory as of the only Son from the Father. What did people see when they saw Jesus? They saw somebody be loved by the Father. Now, now just go with me on this. We feel love because Jesus came down and dwelt among us. We felt love because he exuded grace and truth all the time. And what did we see of love? In Jesus, we saw the love that the Father had down to him. Now, how does it make you feel when you see somebody who is deeply loved by another? Doesn't that change the way you think of that person who's beloved? I'll give you, I'll give you an example. This is an example that somebody told me about. Imagine that you're a teacher and you have a 12-year-old girl in your class who is physically and mentally challenged. And quite honestly, their, their presence in your class has made this semester very difficult. One day, you're out in public, and you see this 12-year-old girl with her dad. And you just observe, and you realize, wow, this 12-year-old girl is beloved by her father. Her father cherishes her. Her father is patient with her. Her father is kind with her. Her father puts an arm around her and encourages her. This girl is a girl who is deeply loved by her dad. 
And you as the teacher of that, of that girl now see her in your class differently because you regard her as a person who is deeply loved by another. When you see somebody who's deeply loved by another, you tend naturally to impute more value to that person because they are loved. The disciples throughout Jesus' ministry saw that Jesus was deeply loved by the Father. And that, that made them feel about Jesus something that was powerful and profound. That's what we ought to get as we look into the pages of the Scriptures. The Son of God is deeply loved by the Father in a way that is mysterious. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's amazing. That's what that's designed to do. Now, one takeaway be before, we, before we move on. And the takeaway is about, about how you manifest love to people in your sphere of influence. Jesus expressed his love through time and presence. Same is true today. If you're going to express love, you express it through time and presence. That means you look people in the eye, you listen, you affirm, and you get curious about what they're saying. So I have a little trigger word that I, I use when I am listening to people. And my trigger word is, Rod, get curious. Because when I get curious, I give people the attention that conveys love. I'll give you two quick stories. That time I was with my daughter, where in 120 seconds, she's holding my hand and she's, she's shedding tears. That trigger word came to me. Rod, get curious. Your daughter is gifting you with a window into the deep part of her soul. Get curious, pay attention, and exude love. And we had a great conversation. It's a great conversation. I've also had conversations where, quite honestly, I was struggling because I was busy. I was struggling because the topic wasn't super interesting to me. And my trigger word came back, Rod, get curious. Get curious. Convey love to this person by giving them your full attention. If the Son of God came down and he spent face-to-face -face time with humans, then if I'm going to show love, I've got to show face-to-face -face time with people. And the way I have to do it is by getting curious and wondering, how can I draw this person out so that they really feel known by me? Because if they feel known, that's part of the building blocks of love. So how Jesus comes, he comes in love. How Jesus communicates, well, he communicates God's nature with precision. Now we go down to verse 15 through 18, and here's what it says. John bore witness about Jesus and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before, be, before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, for a moment, I want to zero in on that last phrase. 
the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So how Jesus comes is in love. How Jesus communicates is with the precision of a son describing his father. He has the authority to describe his father. And what I love is this term, and this is the New American Standard, the term bosom. We don't use that term anymore. Uh, that term is sort of an antiquated term, but it's, it's, it's a term that the NASV uses. But the word literally means in front of the body between the arms. And the idea was that if you love somebody, you would pull them toward you, pulling them toward your chest, pulling them toward your heart, pulling them toward that place that symbolized love, your heart. So where is Jesus? He's at the bosom of the Father. He's metaphorically speaking pulled toward the Father. They're in an embrace. The Father has pulled Jesus very close and holds him close in love. That's the, that's the idea. Now, obviously, that's not literal. It's metaphorical. So what does the metaphor mean? The metaphor means that the father has had an eternity of meaningful experiences with a son. And the son has had an eternity of meaningful experiences with the father. So the interaction between father and son is a perfection of meaningful experiences such that they operate in perfect unity. It's a beautiful picture. I was trying to think of a way of illustrating this. So here's, here's, my, here's my thought. Um, many of you know that we've done a lot of sailing vacations over the years. And as my, uh, my dad has gotten older, I'm, I'm doing all the, all the, being the captain, you know. And, and so my sister and I have evolved this very smooth way of coming up to a harbor. And in this way that we do it, I come up slowly, and, and this is a catamaran now, so it's a little complicated, so I come up slowly, and with the boat hook, we can hook both bow cleats on the catamaran into a double loop that goes back to the mooring buoy. Uh, it requires a lot of teamwork to do this. First couple of times, failure. But over the years, we've evolved this way of coming up, throw it into reverse, I go up very slowly, and uh, man, we, we get that thing and that mooring ball really quickly. We have this experience together where we're doing it well. So when we, next time we do it, it's, it's, it's easy. Now, father and son have had an eternity of meaningful experiences, including creating the world, including flinging the galaxies out into outer space, an eternity of meaningful experiences. So who best to explain the Father than the Son? In fact, it says that in verse 18. It says, Jesus has explained him. Jesus has explained him. I love the Greek term behind it because it, it, it's, it's the word exegesis. It's the word, I am bringing out truth, accurate truth. Think about it this way. If you go onto Amazon and you want to buy a copy of War and Peace, you got 1,400 pages. If you want a 
War and Peace explained, you buy the cliff notes. But what if you bought the cliff notes explained by Leo Tolstoy himself? Would that be cool? Would that be cool? Leo explaining Leo. Leo explaining himself. Well, the, the, way, that, the way that Jesus comes, he perfectly explains the Father because he's had an eternity of meaningful experiences from the Father. Now, <clears throat> um, in verse 16, we see that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So the idea here is that as Jesus is explaining the Father, we go from one level of power to another. We go from one level of understanding about God to another. So Jesus is coming in love. He's communicating perfectly. And what's happening in our heart? We're, we're growing. We're growing. So this year, I've encountered one level of grace. Next year, I hope to encounter another level of grace. The year after that, I hope to encounter another level of grace. Jesus' communication about the Father is leading me into a place of growth. Now, what John wants to say in this prologue is that that makes Jesus the greatest leader ever because he communicates the Father. 115, John bore witness about Jesus and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. You realize that in that phrase, John is pointing out two great spiritual leaders. Moses, great spiritual leader. John was described as the greatest of the prophets. And what this is saying is that Jesus is the greatest leader ever, anywhere. You know, it's really sort of politically incorrect today to um, say that Christianity is different than um, the other religions. It's politically correct to say they're all the same, no difference. John makes it very clear here, Jesus is the greatest of all the spiritual leaders. The reason why is because he is the only one who can accurately explain the Father. Why can he do that? Well, for starters, he's beloved by the Father. He's a member of the Trinity. He's had an, an eternity of loving experiences with the Father. He has the power to accurately explain him. And then that leads us then to how we respond. Now we go back to the beginning of this short little passage. And the question is, how do we respond to the love of Jesus who comes in love, to the communication of Jesus who is the greatest communicator of reality ever? How do we respond? Well, here's verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So the first thing that we see is that um, not everybody's going to receive the truth of 
about Christ. There's going to be a lot of people who say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not buying it. He comes into the world he created. People didn't respond to him. He comes to the Jewish people in Israel, the people whom he, from whom he, he came. They didn't respond to him either. So why aren't people responding to the creator? Why aren't people responding to the Messiah? Because not everybody's going to respond. We live in a different world today. Um, as of April 2017, there are 7.5 billion people on our globe. Of that 7.5 billion, approximately 31% of us humans name the name of Jesus. Now, those are people who are nominal Christians. Those are people who are true Christians. 31% of the globe, according to the latest figures by missiologists, are Christians. Of that 31%, people estimate that about 21% of that 7.5 billion really and truly follow after Christ. 21%. That means a clear majority of humans refuse to recognize Jesus as their Redeemer. Should that surprise us? Well, that's what happened when Jesus came into the world. You know, the majority of people refuse to recognize his claims, even though he did the miracles that the Messiah would do and use the names of deity that the Messiah would claim, even then, a minority of people responded to him, and that's happening today in the year 2017. In the United States, we've had this really unusual situation where for the past 240 years, we have had a very Christianized culture. And um, it's fashionable to say that that's not all that great. And, and I will tell you that a lot of common grace has come through that very Christianized culture. A lot of common grace has come through that. And that common grace has been good for a lot of people. We're in a time that's changing now where a lot more persecution is coming, a lot more antagonism is coming against the things of Christ, against the Christian worldview. We're surprised at this. A lot of us are. And we shouldn't be. Because the prologue to the Gospel of John tells us that not everybody will respond to the love of Christ. Hey, he comes down and dwells among us as an example of love. He communicates the love of God in a perfect way. You'd think everybody would. This is the God of the universe we're talking about. But a minority of people are going to respond to him. But some will. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of the will of God. There's an amazing thing about, about the promise. The God who invites you into the circle of his love also gives you status within the circle of his love. That's amazing. The God who invites you into the circle of his love doesn't just say, okay, you're in our circle now. That's cool. You're second class. The triune God, first class, you're second class. That's not how it works. 
Triune God says, you have the right to be my child. You have the right to dwell as status, privileged individuals within the circle of our love. And you think everybody would want that. John tells us, not going to happen. A, my, a majority of people are going to say, uh-uh, don't want to reconnect to my creator through the redeemer. Don't want it. Won't have it. But a minority of people will. And those who do have the status of children of God. Yeah, I've got this really neat relationship with our friend Leo in Cuba. And I've often said, Leo, you're like a brother to me. Leo is not my brother. Leo is a great friend. He is not my brother. He's not my, my physical brother. He's not my adopted brother. He's a great friend. I don't have status inside my family. Don't have it. But I have status with my, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. I have status. And God gives you status inside his family. It's love with status. Now, once you're legally included into the circle of that love, you always have to remember the source of your status. It's not of blood. You're a Christian, if you've come to Christ, not because you were born into a Christian nation or because your mom and dad were Christians. That's not how it works. You don't get to become a Christian just because you're born into a Christian home or you live in a so-called Christian nation. Nor were you born of the will of the flesh. It's not like, okay, I'm going to try really, really hard to merit God accepting me. That's not how salvation works. Not the will of the flesh, because I wanted to. Nor is it the will of man. I didn't become a Christian because my dad said, you are going to become a Christian. Or my wife said, you better do this. That's not how it works. Uh, I am a follower of Jesus solely because God worked in my life. That does not negate free will. It does not negate free will. The Bible is very clear about the fact that sovereignty and free will work mysteriously together. And we had the opportunity to respond by an exercise of our will to the love of God. And God is still sovereign. How that works is a mystery, but it works. When I get to heaven, I will never be able to say to God, awesome, I did it, Lord. I received your son. So cool. No, I'm going to say, Jesus, this is all of you. If you hadn't worked in my life, there's no way that I would be a Christian right now. God's going to get 100% of the credit. We have to remember that our privileged status with God had nothing to do with any of our human merit. It was all of God. So let's recap where we've been. God shows his love. He sends his son. His son comes down to convey the love of the triune God. How does Jesus communicate? He communicates with accuracy because he is the second person of the Trinity with an eternity of loving relationships with the Father. And what's our response? Our response is to receive, to receive him. So I conclude with a few takeaways. 
Takeaway number one, stop hiding from love. It's very easy if you are a follower of Christ to hide from the love of God. It's very easy. Very easy for you to doubt God's love for you. Very easy for you to doubt sometimes that you have a privileged status. You don't feel like a child of God. The evil one loves to have you uh, doubt God's love and hide from him. And in hiding from him, you get insecure and nervous. You feel like, I'm not a privileged person in the household of God. You are. And it honors God when you come out of the shadows, you stop hiding from love, and you say, you champion this idea, I am unconditionally loved by the Father forever. You know, Jesus said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit who's going to be with you as long as you're obedient. Did you say that? Didn't say that. Didn't say, I give you the Holy Spirit as long as you don't screw up like you always do. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit if you promise to be good. Doesn't say that. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you forever. That means Jesus is saying, I love you unconditionally. And the challenge is stop hiding from love. Stop hiding from love. A second takeaway is become a champion of grace. Become a champion of grace. The grace that Jesus showed by, by coming down to earth and communicating the Father is flat out stunning. He honored everybody he was with. He was a person conveying honor. So you have this opportunity to be a person who conveys honor. Um, very easy to criticize, very easy to look at somebody and go, I don't like that, 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 or that. Look at an organization and say, you know, I don't like that part of the organization, that part of the organization. I don't, I don't like that. You can be a kind of a connoisseur of criticism. There's a lot of people who are followers of Christ who are connoisseurs of criticism. And that becomes their culture. It's a culture of critique. And they're very proud of that. I'm proud because I'm so sophisticated. I'm so refined in my tastes and my understanding that I can become a refined criticizer of things that are less than perfect. I got one word for that. Sin. Because when you maintain a culture of critique, you are being the reverse of what Jesus was. Jesus poured forth honor. Now, he did it with grace and truth, so he said to the, said to the Pharisees, who were damaging a lot of people, you are whitewashed tombs. You are a den of vipers. All right, he was honest with those who were abusive and destroying people's lives. He was honest and powerful there. But his overall culture was a culture of honoring people, especially the lost, the let down, and people who were in pain. So if you're going to be a, a lover of people, you become a champion of grace. And then one more, receive Christ. I mean, it's possible that you're here today and you've, you've never crossed over the line of faith. You've never said, you know what? I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I've been kind of at the door on the line for many, many years, and I just, I just, I just can't get across the line. I've got a friend of mine, a friend in, in, in Nevada, and he's got a great friend, and, and 
they were in a conversation this week, and this, this friend said, Bill, I'm just, I'm just not, not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to transfer my trust onto the finished work of Christ. Hopefully, what makes you ready is an understanding of the love of God. Jesus comes down from heaven with intent to love. Jesus walks the earth with intent to love and show honor and pour out grace and truth. Jesus is beloved by his Father in such a way that people around saw the culture of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're invited into that. Why wouldn't you want to receive Christ and receive that reconciliation with the Father? You can do that now. So I'm going to pray. That prayer expresses the desire of your heart. You can pray silently along with me. And then I'll close this all in prayer. Father, I thank you that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the dead. I thank you, Father, that he died for me. Right now, I receive Jesus as my Savior, my Lord, as my forgiver, and my leader. I thank you that you've given me the gift of eternal life and the gift of eternal forgiveness. I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And Father, for the rest of us, I want to say thank you that um, you give us windows into the mysterious, eternal, abundant love of the triune God. Lord, may we, may we be a conduit, a river of that love. In Jesus' name, amen.